What's happening, people? Jose Nino here for another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, y'all are going to receive a more practical segment on politics. I'm actually joined by a former co-worker and mentor of mine. Chris Stone is the Director of Communications at the National Association for Gun Rights. He's not only a slick political operator, but someone who I also consider a good friend. He played an instrumental role in teaching me a lot of like the ins and outs of politics and how to be like a effective political operative during my time at NEGR as a copywriter and policy writer. So how's everything going, Stone? Thanks for that introduction, Jose. Uh, it's going pretty good here, man. We're getting really busy with legislative season here for mostly state legislatures, since most state legislatures are part-time and kind of run January to May or or early June, and of course, doing all our federal work. But uh, it's been awesome ramping up our YouTube channel and some of our external communications with different members in the organization. So that's kind of what we're focusing on right now in 2022, is just hitting the ground running, trying to pass constitutional carry and defend the Second Amendment. Yeah, very busy plate that you guys have. But it's a really good sign that NHGR has grown significantly. So, yeah, let's start with what you do with NHGR because I imagine most of my listeners don't even know what NHGR is. What is NHGR and the organization's overall mission? Yep. So NHGR stands for the National Association for Gun Rights. We're a 501c4 nonprofit, and we're dedicated to defending and restoring the Second Amendment all throughout the United States. Our office, our kind of our headquarters is uh, located in northern Colorado near Fort Collins in Loveland. We also have an office in Washington, D.C. And then we have field staff who work remotely all across the country. we got folks in Texas, South Carolina, Alabama, Michigan, folks who work out here but uh, travel pretty frequently. And, you know, the real goal of the organization is to just truly be a no-compromise gun rights lobby, and uh, we're opposed to all forms of gun control. And our goal is to repeal gun control and pass pro-gun laws like constitutional carry. Uh, That's a big issue for us on the state level, which simply states that if you're a law-abiding citizen and you're legally allowed to possess a handgun, you should be able to carry that handgun openly or concealed without having to beg the government for a permit or pay a tax for your right to exercise your constitutional rights. And so that's what we do. It's awesome work. We uh, helped pass constitutional carry in five states last year. And previous to that, over about the last 10 years, laid the groundwork for passage of constitutional carry in a lot of other states. We're very busy this year. Uh, Brendan Boudreau, who's the director of our field operations, he's got staff on the ground right now in Ohio, Alabama, Georgia, let's see, Indiana, and there's a few other states that I'm forgetting, Nebraska, excuse me working with legislators there to really get the grassroots involved. And that's kind of our our mission is to be both no compromise, but also really get citizens involved in the process of of lobbying their elected officials to stand up for the Second Amendment. You know, we saw a real void with that. Our president, Dudley Brown, saw a real void with that with the NRA, how they were just collecting a lot of donors' money 
And then I'm sure a lot of people heard of the scandals coming out of the NRA over the last decade, how they were wasting donors' money and how Wayne LaPierre, you know, buys these $20,000 suits and wears Gucci loafers and, <laughs> you know, are, are cutting deals, quite frankly, to get watered down, you know, quote unquote, watered down pro gun bills. And, you know, our attitude is, you know, hell no, we're not going to do that. Like, we're not here to cut deals to, you know, get half measures on restoring our rights. We want our gun rights back completely. So that's what we do. We also have a political action committee, an AGR PAC, which can endorse candidates for public office and do direct electioneering. We also have a legal foundation, the National Foundation for Gun Rights, which is there to defend gun owners. We uh, helped raise money for the legal defense of Kyle Rittenhouse. We file a lot of amicus briefs on lawsuits and just also help gun owners all over the country when they're being you know, persecuted for using a firearm as self-defense. We like to help them out any way we can. And then we're the only gun rights group with a super PAC, uh, affiliated super PAC, Gun Rights America. So we kind of got different branches of the organization that we all try and help out and work for. And we've had a lot of success. We've got about four and a half million active members on our file who take action. And so that's kind of a long overview. So I'll pause and we can get into different specifics if you want. Yeah, I wanted to ask basically... This goes around like the topic of like a unique value proposition because we know that NHGR positions itself as a no compromise gun lobby. But what else do you think makes NHGR special compared to not just like your ostensibly pro Second Amendment organizations, but any other right wing organization? Because there's a whole cornucopia of these organizations out there that don't really stand out or yield much in terms of results. So what do you think makes it NEGR like so special these days? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what makes us special is we all really specialize in, in gun rights, right? We're a single issue group and we really work on getting people trained up in how to lobby their elected officials and get our staff trained up on how to make a difference. You know, a lot of these battles, especially legislative battles we get involved with, we really plan out for years. You know, it's not just as simple as saying, oh, well, we want a bill and we want to restore gun rights. We've got to look at the makeup of the legislature. And one of our missions here at the organization is essentially reminding our members who are part of the organization and our staff that we want to link the legislative season with the election season. In other words, when people get elected to public office and they make promises about defending gun rights and restoring gun rights, we want to see them do that. We want to see them take action to introduce bills, to co-sponsor bills, to obviously vote correctly at the bare minimum. And then when people don't do that, when our elected officials who represent us don't actually deliver on that promise, we remind our members and say, hey, you know, this person who, who's supposed to be protecting the Constitution, who's supposed to be protecting your inalienable rights, hasn't done so. You know, you should let them know what they're doing. And then that's also where our PAC kind of comes into play, where we can directly, uh, you know, endorse or oppose candidates for public office and do that work over years and years of legislative cycles to kind of see the ball get rolling. You know, the other thing, too, is our organization, you know, even though we were not an educational association in the sense that we don't do firearms training or anything like that, the people who work here are gun people. I mean, we all, we're all into hunting. We're all into sports shooting. Dudley Brown, our president, does a lot of competition shooting. We've got folks here who 
do long range shooting competitions. We got a lot of former military folks. And so, you know, we take it seriously as a right that we want to exhibit as well. You know, it's a real tangible thing. It's a real necessity. We're certainly thankful for all the other multi-issue groups out there who kind of cover just liberty issues in general. But we wanted to be laser focused on this one issue and be focused in a way that is completely no holds bar, no compromise. We're not going to cut deals. We're not going to stand up for half measures where, you know, people say, okay, well, we'll give you this as long as you give us this. And our attitude is, is no, we want gun rights restored. And it's a long battle, but there's a lot of people who are fired up about it. And we're trying to bring more people into the fight. So that's how we try to differentiate ourselves is really in-depth planning on how to bring Americans into the battle for freedom and then just keep it going and growing the organization. Yeah, all great stuff. NAGR is truly unique among these organizations. And I would say this, that during my time at NAGR, I picked up on one development that I believe is arguably the most successful right-wing campaign of the past 40 years. And I'm referring to constitutional carry. The numbers kind of speak for itself because when I tell people this, for example, when Barack Obama came into office in 09, there were only two constitutional carry states, Vermont and Alaska. Fast forward to 2022, we have 21 states and counting because we could possibly see multiple states pass it this year. Could you explain to my listeners what the concept of constitutional carry is and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of like you said, since the founding of the nation, Vermont was the only state to basically say, if you're a law-abiding citizen and you can legally possess a, a gun, firearm, you can openly or concealed carry it, and the government doesn't need to have issue or you a permit. You don't have to pay a tax to the government to carry. And so they've had that since the 1700s. Well, for the longest time, most states didn't recognize your right to carry a firearm at all, unless you were, you know, in the process of, of hunting and stuff like that. So for a long time, really starting in the 1960s, 1970s, all the way through the 80s and the 90s, you had states fighting at least for the right to say, hey, well, what if we create a permit system where people get fingerprinted and they have to pay a tax to the county? Maybe we'll let those people carry concealed weapons, but only in very certain circumstances. So you had a lot of states do may issue permits where the state would grant special permission if you jumped through a ton of hoops and knew the right people and paid a bunch of money so you could you know, actually exercise your right, which it says you know, in the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. And then throughout the 90s, you had the progress of shall issue, which says you can carry a gun, but you just have to pay to have a permit, pay this tax. And really what we started doing saying, well, no, why, why isn't every state like Vermont? Why are we allowing governments to collect a tax, to collect your fingerprints, to collect your photographs, to create arbitrary training standards, just so you have the right, quote unquote, in their eyes, the right to carry a gun according to their design. And so all constitutional carry is, like I kind of said at the beginning, is the simple bill that says, look, if you are legally allowed to possess a handgun, you should be able to carry it openly or concealed, and you don't have to get a permit. You don't have to pay a tax to your county or your state, and you don't have to get fingerprinted. Now, constitutional carry doesn't get rid of permitting systems. Some people like having concealed carry permits for 
reciprocity reasons with other states that don't have constitutional carry. So if you want to get a permit, great. But all the law says is you don't have to. And it's been a key focus for us. And we've seen, obviously, a big state that passed it last legislative cycle was Texas, which was huge because, you know, Texas really prides itself on being this pro-gun paradise. (laughs) Quite honestly, they weren't. I mean, you, you have states like, obviously, Vermont, and then you had New Hampshire and Maine up in the Northeast, which most people don't think of the Northeast of the United States as a really pro-gun place, but it is. And so we saw Texas, Tennessee, Utah, Montana pass it last year, and there's a lot more progress this year. And so that's what we're trying to do. It's gone from, you know, like you were saying, it's gone from Vermont was the only state that had constitutional carry, and people thought it was weird, you know, and then you have states like Alaska and Wyoming, and people go, okay, well, you know, those are kind of frontier states, to now... You know, it's a bill in every state legislature. Obviously, you got long shot states that are going to take a real long time to work on, you know, California, New York and places like that. But yeah, but, you know, even there, we're not giving up. You know, yeah. Is it are we going to pour all our resources into California? Well, we'll know because we can't afford that. And it's going to take a long time. But we're going to fight the battles in states where we know we can win and restore people's right to exercise their constitutional rights without the government infringing on it. And and that's our real goal. Yeah. Constitutional carry is clearly where the momentum's at when it comes to Second Amendment battles. These days, I actually have wins because when it comes to effective politics, you have to look at results. Forget all this like fancy rhetoric or even assumptions. Like you kind of go with what's like working and ride that wave till you no longer able to like get any more results from it. But One thing that has always impressed me with NAGR is its model that it uses that I believe is unique among political organizations, namely how the organization is relentless with regards to how it places constant pressure on politicians. What is the general premise behind such an activism model and how effective is it? Well, yeah, I mean, our whole thing is we want the grassroots involved, right? You know, I, I've in you know previous professional careers, you know, I've worked in the Congress and we've had a lot of staffers here who've worked in state legislatures or worked on campaigns. And and when you get grassroots Americans involved, right? Like when we send out emails or mail for people to sign petitions, we really deliver those petitions. And when constituents in a state or in a district actually take action and put pressure on elected officials those officials really feel the heat. They start realizing that their voters are getting pissed off. And there's nothing worse for an elected official than angry voters who realize that they're being told that the person who's representing them isn't actually defending their individual rights. And so I think it's made us very powerful in the sense that that's what we've always tried to do. You know, we're not going out here, you know, stroking massive checks to every politician in Washington, D.C. Certainly, like I said, our PAC, you know, we want to help good people, people like Representative Thomas Massey, who's a true defender of freedom. Uh, And so our our political action committee will give him money. But we're not going to go write a check to every single member of Congress because they, you know, on their website, they said, you know, I like guns. And there's a picture of them holding a shotgun and you shake their hand and be like, thank you for doing nothing. What we want to do is train up our staff to get average Americans involved in the fight. You know, just even recently, we have staff on the ground in Montgomery, Alabama right now, where they're pretty close 
potentially to passing constitutional carry this year. They delivered almost 40,000 citizen petitions that we collected. And so what did they do? They showed up and they had an army of volunteers, everyday people who were grabbing stacks of petitions, going office to office to office, dropping them on people's desks, saying, look, if you work for these people. They're paying attention. If you don't support this bill, if you don't vote for it when it comes to the floor, we're going to tell people about that. You're going to have to face those angry voters. And when it comes to election time, you're going to have to deal with them. And so I think that model has just made us very successful is that we don't try and be access-based. You know, we're not going to pay $40,000 to go sit at some private dinner, you know, at a Capitol or or Washington, D.C. We're going to instead take that money that people give to us and invest it back in the ways that we can get people active and on the ground and going to their legislator's office, calling the legislators, sending them postcards, because those mean something. They actually work. And so that's a lot of our our model. To piggyback off of this, because this is also just based on my experience working with y'all and other adjacent organizations, there is a degree of skepticism exercised towards the education-based model of political activism that you see a lot of groups on the right engage in, which tends to be in some ways kind of anti-political. What are the main pitfalls of like the education model of political change? Well, you know, I mean, something we always kind of say in the office is this, you know, how many of your listeners here could probably, you know, raise their hand if I asked the question, you know, do you have people in your own family who don't believe in liberty or freedom, right? You know, who are you know, who are a liberal who probably voted for Joe Biden, right? Most listeners would raise their hand. And then if I ask them, you know, how many times have you tried to educate, you know, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, your brothers and sisters, you know, your parents on why, you know, gun rights or freedom of speech or whatever it is, you know, sound money is a good thing. People say, yeah, I've done that. I mean, you know, how successful have you been? <laughs> Most people go, well, we just end up fighting and then nothing ever happens. Well, that's ultimately the education model, right? Like if you just try and educate people on an issue, Yeah, you might get some, but really what you want to do is you want to get the people who already agree with you and then, you know, let them lobby their elected officials. Now, does that mean you can't ever use education? No, certainly we write email and mail and we put out one pagers to let people know what a bill is doing, to let people know what our goals are. In that sense, we want to educate our members who are already with us. But just dumping educational materials out into the ether and then hoping that a politician is going to see it and do the right thing is kind of laughable. I mean, think about this. Barack Obama, who hated liberty and freedom, was a constitutional scholar. Do you think if we just showed up, if he had somehow invited us to the White House and we'd give him a really well-written paper on why the Second Amendment matters (laughs) to individual liberty and freedom, that he would just abandon all his gun control plans? No. I mean, the guy was a scholar in the Constitution and just radically chooses to obviously ignore it. So that's why you can't just merely rely on, you know, writing extensive research papers and then hoping people are going to read them and have their minds changed. You actually have to get the grassroots to contact their elected officials or, or find people who are willing to run for office and get new people in office. You know, if the voters relieve somebody of their duty of serving them, and there's an open seat or there's someone who wants to run, you know, that's even better. I mean, that's actual taking action to motivate new people to come into the fight. And so that's why we don't just, you know, do pure education because simply it might look cool on paper, 
but to actually change things, it rarely, rarely works. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because I've seen a lot of people on the right also use this other concept that is pretty similar to the education model where they'll say politics is downstream from culture. What's your overall take on that perspective? Well, you know what? There's a lot of people who say that, but ultimately politics is essentially it's the adjudication of power, right? It's who rules whom, who's in charge. And so when we think of it that way, there's a political class of people that want to rule over you and scrutinize your life. And so if, you're, if your argument is that, you know, oh, well, this is just a result of where we're at. and We can't do anything about it because we're not in the majority. We're just a few people. Then, you know, go study the American Revolution, right? The, the overwhelming majority of, of people living in the United States before it was the, you know, the full United States of America, they didn't support the revolution. The revolution was a minority but it was an angry minority that took action. Now, obviously, we're not talking about you know, a violent revolution. We're just talking about using the Constitution, using your freedom of speech to defend your rights. And we're trying to find that really vocal and active minority who care about what's going on to use the laws in place to either remove people from public office and replace them with true you know, lovers of liberty. Or you know, even if a politician isn't great, but heck, we can leverage enough pressure on them to do the right thing and vote the right way. Well, that's good enough for us. We want to change the law. So, you know, I, I would caution people to get, you know not get caught up in this. Well, you know, we got to see what culture says, and you know, we got to wait till it's the right time to pass this bill because the reality is it'll never be the right time. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I actually like your point about the who rules whom, because that's like Lenin 101 and the Bolsheviks were clearly a minority that took over Russia and ushered in one of like the most tyrannical, if not the most tyrannical regime in human history. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just one of these things where it's, I mean, think about all the promises politicians make that get broken. And that's the pitfall people can fall into when they say, oh, we got to wait for the right moment. Well, they'll just keep kicking the can down the road keep kicking the can down the road. Our, our whole point is build pressure, build pressure, build pressure, and then get it done. And yeah, it might take a couple of legislative cycles. Things don't, things don't happen overnight. You know, we were active in Texas for about a decade yep. before we saw constitutional carry become law last year. And so, yeah, things don't happen overnight, but the work was done every day to continue chipping away, to continue putting the issue to the forefront. And if all we were doing was saying, oh, well, we got to wait for a cultural change, and then we'll take action. It's like, that's stupid. It's not going to yeah. work. You're just going to get played and people are going to get discouraged and they're going to drop out of the fight. But if you can continue chipping away at an issue and show what you're doing to make positive gains, it fires people up. And it puts the politicians on notice that they're there to work for us. They're there to defend the Constitution. If they don't do it, well, then we're going to remind the voters of that and the voters can relieve them of their duty to public service and we'll put someone else in there. Right on. That's really the way to go because I think some of those arguments too, there is like an importance of having kind of like a counterculture against like the established like managerial culture we have. But from my experience dealing with some people, it seems to me it's kind of like a cope or a cop-out that's used for people that don't want to do political activity, that don't want to hit the pavement hard or really just get the reps in because Political activism is not an overnight thing, as you said before. A lot of these battles are very drawn out. Now, let's shift our gaze to the federal government because things are looking pretty gridlocked there because 
you have obviously like the 50-50 split in the Senate with Vice President Kamal Harris as a tiebreaker, and then the House is under Democrat control. And obviously, Democrats hold the White House. However, we have seen some Democrat senators, specifically in swing states, get cold feet on gun control. That said, our experience has shown us that the gun controllers will still find crafty ways to impose gun control through the bureaucracy and other administrative means. What are some of the unconventional threats that you could see coming out of Mordor in the next year or so? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the real threats that we've seen for a long time, just if you're talking about the federal government, is kind of like what you were just saying, is they avoid using the legislature, which can be held accountable, right? Yes. The House of Representatives, the Senate, you know, they have to be elected to public office. And they use unelected bureaucrats to basically slowly chip away at the Second Amendment. You know, some of them are elected. You know, that's why we have opposed all the nominees for the director of the ATF, because they've all been gun control advocates. And, well, the ATF shouldn't exist in the first place. It needs to be abolished. But we'll start with at least defeating the directors. And, and that's what they do. They basically use, you know, you can look at the CDC, right? The CDC director not too long ago, you know, saying, you know, gun violence is a public health crisis. So they do it that way. Or they use the ATF to basically say, we're going to arbitrarily redefine what a pistol is. And we'll turn people into felons over the night for owning AR and AK pistols. We're just going to consider them short barrel shotguns, even though there should be no, like I said, there should be no regulations on short barrel shotguns in the first place or short barrel rifles. But they do that, and so they chip away. A big thing for years has been mental health, right? They say, oh, well, we have a mental health crisis in this country. We're just going to bar you know, mentally ill people from owning guns, which sounds, you know, maybe sounds good on paper, but then you look into what they're saying, and they're basically saying, if you've ever, you know, if you're a veteran and you have someone who is a financial fiduciary for you, you're considered now mentally ill. And we're going to put you on a next gun ban list that you can't get off of, and you're permanently banned from owning firearms for the rest of your life. And so what we're really trying to do is make sure, A, our elected officials who probably vote and appoint those people know the issue and then take action on it and then make sure that our members know and, and crank up the pressure. And, and this is why elections matter, because those agencies report directly to whoever's in the White House. They report to key people in legislative bodies. And so if we just ignore that and think that, oh, well, these are, you know, random people who really don't have any influence, it's not going to make a difference who's in that position, you're going to find out very soon that it does make a difference. And so we're already having to look forward to litigation with the ATF over suing them over the pistol brace issue because they're basically just making up rules as they go. And so the powers that be in Washington, D.C. truly do need to be reined in, and that's why you know, we want our members to pay attention to elections, to get out and vote when it's time to vote and, and call their representatives, call their senators, and make sure that we rein these people in because they will take agencies and just use them to slowly chip away the Second Amendment, you know, kind of like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, I see you guys are going to be pretty busy in the next year or so. And even when NAGR successfully like, pulls off passing constitutional carry or stop some form of gun control in its tracks, NAGR is quickly taking on another fight. What are some of the bigger fights that 
you guys will be engaged in in 2022 and beyond? Yeah, big fights in 2022. I mean, obviously, when we've talked about constitutional carry at the state level is huge. Our legal foundation, the National Foundation for Gun Rights, is definitely going to be involved with tons of lawsuits regarding the ATF and their pistol brace rulings. You can, if you need to learn more about that, you can check out the National Foundation for Gun Rights online at uh, nationalfoundationforgunrights.org. That's what they're going to be doing. A lot of 2022 is going to be spent using our political action committee to endorse candidates and oppose candidates for public office using our super PAC. But really big things that we see legislatively um, from Washington, D.C. is Joe Biden's goal is to pass universal firearms registration, right? Eventually, they, they want to get to a point where they can declare certain weapons completely illegal and confiscate them. But you can't confiscate weapons until you have a registry built to do so. And that's what they're trying to do. That is their long-term plan is to pass all these regulations that chip away, chip away, and they can finally get the pressure to pass universal gun registration. That's why it's so important for us. You know, we're really involved in the fight to protect the filibuster in the Senate. That's what saved the Second Amendment back in 2013 when Barack Obama was pushing his massive gun control package was the filibuster and the 60-vote threshold to prevent crazy legislation from just being rammed through the Senate. So those are our main focuses are at the state level, restoring gun rights where we can, and at the federal level, really defending the encroachment on our rights, all the stuff they've already taken from us, and then using our political action committees and and the super PAC to really do electioneering in a way where we can find good people who do defend the Constitution and support them, people like Senator Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, you know, like I said, Representative Thomas Massey, Representative Bob Good. These are folks that really do actually, you know, they, they don't just talk a big game. They walk it when they're down there in the halls of Congress. So that's kind of our thoughts for 2022. That's some awesome stuff. I really look forward to what NAGR will be doing in 2022 and the near future because we're in for some very turbulent times. Before we head out, where can my listeners learn about NAGR and its latest projects? So yeah, if anyone wants to learn about the organization, easiest thing to do is just go to gunrights.org. That's our website. We've got a lot of information on there about how you can get involved and, and how you can join the organization if you're interested in joining. We're all over the web. You know, We've got a Facebook page, National Association for Gun Rights. You just search it. We're on YouTube, producing a lot more YouTube content. Instagram, Twitter. And that's where we try and keep people up to date on all our legislative battles. We regularly text our members. If you want to receive text messages about what's going on, you can opt in for that as well and join our email list. That's the best way to get involved, though, is just go to our website at gunrights.org and check us out on the social media channels and stay up to date. And then when we ask you to take action, please take action because we deliver on those promises. You know, if we ask you to sign a petition, we really do deliver them. If you, if we ask you to make phone calls, we really do patch you through to the congressional switchboard. Um, it makes all the difference in fighting to protect the Second Amendment. Great stuff. Yeah, as always, Stone, I had a great time chatting with you. And to all my listeners, thank you so much again for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken. <laughs>